please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4, if you're not accustomed to using a Bible, you can grab the black ones around you, and they, that can be found on page 82, Leviticus 4. The last two weeks, uh, Nate Prater was preaching, and we've been tag-teaming this short mini-series through the first seven chapters of Leviticus. And I told him uh, last week that every time we read the text, I'm reading it and I think, man, I don't know what you're going to say because that was interesting, you know? Like, what in the world is going on in Leviticus? And if that's the way I think about it, knowing that, like, I've got Bible degrees and I do this as a profession and that here you all are, and not to make little of any of you, but just to say, like, some of you maybe have never read Leviticus before. And if you have, maybe it's been a long time ago. And we've already had a show of hands, and many of you have said, I've never even heard a sermon in Leviticus before. And that this more than likely will be the best sermon from Leviticus 4 that you've ever heard. And it'll be the worst. So here's what we need to do. I want to make sure we read the text. It's a long one. And I have a feeling that it'd be easy for many of you to just kind of tune out and be like, all right, when are you going to get to actually explaining what's going on? Let's not do that. Let's really try and focus in on some of these things so you can hear it a first time, and then we'll go back over it when I preach it. Because this is a long section. It's Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to chapter 5, verse 13. All of God's Word is profitable and useful for instruction. Repetition is a good way to hear and meditate over it. So the first time I want you to hear it, I just want you to follow along as I read. And then even if you have that question in the back of your mind, like, Man, I don't know what's going on here. That's okay. Just stick with it, and then hopefully we'll have some big ideas in just a moment that will help us all. So starting in verse 1, Leviticus chapter 4, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. 
And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it upon a fire of wood on the ash heap it shall be burned up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that the Lord, by the Lord's commandments that ought not to be done and they realize their guilt, when the sin that they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd of, for a sin offering and bring it in the front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out of at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly." Now, when a leader sins doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering." Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. In all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin and he shall be forgiven." If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he commanded is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with its finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove. As the fat is removed from the peace offering and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger 
and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or, if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of an unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanliness, of whatever sort the uncleanliness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, and he comes to know it, and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, and when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And he shall bring them to the priest, who shall offer the first one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall never sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out of the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he committed, and he shall be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah, of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of its memorial portion and burn this on the altar On the Lord's food offerings, it is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. And the remainder shall be for the priest, as in the grain offering. You did it, guys. Hopefully, you didn't fall asleep and followed along. So that is what is called in your Bible, chapter 4 into chapter 5, the sin offering. If you've been here the last few weeks, you will not be surprised by the next slide behind me. Sin offering is fine. It's a good translation. I'm not trying to say your English Bibles are bad. It's just a different perspective if you hear the word sin instead of the word purification. And so what we're going to call this offering is purification offering, or another way to describe it is we're going to be talking about decontamination, either by sin 
or by being coming unclean, which is not always like a moral sin, as you might have heard when we were following along. Touching an animal that is dead is not necessarily sin. And in fact, you may not even realize that you had touched the dead animal. And later you realize, oh, wait, I didn't realize it, but I was just sitting right here and I put my hand on this dead animal and now I'm unclean. See, uncleanliness is different than sin. And purification offering is covering more than just sin. So when you and I just hear sin offering, you're like, oh, well, this must be the sacrifice that deals with sin. True, but more. So that's why we're going to call this the purification or the decontamination offering. So here's the big idea. In order to be with God, that's what the whole purpose of all of this is, is to dwell with the presence of God, that God and humanity would be united together in full harmony and fellowship. There must be cleansing, purifying by blood. Blood is the agent that purifies and cleanses or decontaminates. So how are we going to make sense of this big idea knowing that you and I probably think that blood would contaminate and that it would make us unclean? This is a strange concept. There's a big gap between our world and their world. The idea that if you sin, that I'm going to start sprinkling blood everywhere and that's going to cleanse me somehow? So let's just throw that to the side for a moment. As we look at just this big idea, I want to give you right from the start what I hope will be a helpful illustration for how we make sense of purification or decontamination. I want to take you into the room that we are in a couple years ago, right before my wife's surgery. She had back surgery a little over a year and a half ago. She had a bad disc, and we were going to fuse the two. I was not. The doctor was going to fuse the two bottom bones together, and then therefore there would not be all this rubbing on her vertebrae and have a whole new back in life, and praise God, it worked. So I want to take you into the room before she goes into operation room. It's me, it's her mom, and it's her dad, and it's my wife, and there's other nurses coming in and out and prepping. This is like the prep room. The doctor is going to come in before the surgery, and he's going to like give us a few words and say some things. And I want you to imagine, this did not happen, but I want you to imagine that the doctor comes, and he was like I was the last two weeks, and he had a cold, and he was really sick. And he starts just going, hachoo, 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 and just sneezing all over the place, and then just going, <laughs> and he just can't stop, and he's got like this sneeze attack, you know, and I'm like, hey, buddy, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm just a little sick. I'm like, well, maybe you shouldn't be sneezing all over my wife when you're about to go into the operating room, you know? I think there's like a procedure where you go from this room to another room, and then you're going to like scrub up, and then you're going to put on gloves, and then you're going to put on like a big coat thing, and then you're going to go into the holy place, the separate sacred place. I'm not allowed to go in there, but before you go in there, I want to make sure that either A, you're not sick, and B, you're really covered, you know, that you've got like five masks on. You see what I mean here? There is a holy place in the hospital called the operating room. And only until you've been decontaminated should you go in. And by no stretch would you want anybody performing a surgery when they don't wear gloves, when they don't wash their hands, and they're sneezing all over the place. Do you get the picture? That's the picture of God's presence in the middle of the tent of the tabernacle of God's people. The tent 
where God would dwell was in the middle of a camp, and surrounding the camp were all the other tents where all the people lived, and it was to sign as a symbol and as as a picture to all of them that God wants to dwell and live in their presence. And in fact, you can have God's presence in your camp and in the tent by offering these sacrifices. And then you can get closer into the presence of God. You can even get into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. Or as we read it, the priest gets into the first entrance area. And so I think we have, by at least the illustration of a doctor being decontaminated or purified, the big idea that God demands for His presence to be a holy place like the operating room. And that you don't just waltz in there thinking that you and God are fine and that it's going to be okay. No, death will come. You're going to wreck things up if you come in unclean, unholy, and an immoral life. So the order of these sacrifices is shown on the chart behind me. We've seen this before. I made a couple edits to it to get the idea. Just so you can Remember, chapter 4 is not actually the fourth offering in the sequence. It's actually the first. When the purification was going to happen, you'd have first a purification or sin offering for the sins of the priest, for the sins of the whole congregation, for the sins of the common people, as we saw on the list. And the point, the focus, if you follow it down, of both this week's message and next week is about the blood. The blood is what cleanses. So use my illustration of the doctor. He needs to wash up. He needs some good soap, antibacterial soap. And then we'd feel a little bit better, maybe. Even if he wasn't sick, we'd want him to wash up, right? The blood is the idea of life, and the life of the blood is going to wash up and cleanse the worshiper. And so that's what that side is all about. Purification and restitution, that's this week and next week's messages, are about blood and cleansing. The first and second chapter of Leviticus is about fire burning and being dedicated fully to God. That it is for God and to God, and the burnt offering or the ascension offering is like, God, this is all you and we get none of it. This is just to say, you're great, you're good. We want to be in your presence. We want our smoke to come up into your presence. And so it's dedicated to God. And then the last one, which we saw last week, is the peace offering. And as we talked about joyful, celebratory, being in God's presence. And so there's a, there's a progression here. The blood cleanses. The fire shows the dedication and the commitment to say, God, I want this for you. And then finally, let's feast. Let's be together. Let's dwell in each other's presence and celebrate. So where are we at in chapter 4? We're there. The emphasis is on the blood and the cleansing. So let's look at these three questions for the remainder of our time that I think pop right out of our text because one of the things you want to notice is that even though that chart tries to show some of the differences, there are a lot of overlapping similarities between these things. That's why it gets repetitive and it's hard to follow along. And if this is your morning Bible reading, I, I get it. Like it, it can get tedious. So when we look at some of the overlapping and then similarities and differences, here's three questions that come out. One, who is this offering for? Who is this sacrifice for? Two, 
when should it be done? Three, why? What's the purpose? And you should already know that because I just showed you the chart. It's for cleansing and purification. But let's work through each of these and think through the implications for our lives. First, who is it for? Look at chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. Who is it for? If the anointed priest sins. Anointed priest is probably a reference to the high priest, but either way, it is a priest. Think pastor, elder, in terms of our current scenario. Somebody who's a spiritual leader over this community of people. So who's these offerings for? Well, the first person is the priest, which means what? Priests sin. Priests have unintentional sins. And I'm going to explain that in point two as to what occasion you do this. But first, we just want to think about the person. The priest sins. He is supposed to be a spiritual leader, but he is not a perfect man. Which is a good reminder, isn't it? Pastors sin. They need the blood of Jesus. Pastors need forgiveness. Pastors are going to let you down. Do not put your hope in priests or pastors. They have to make an offering for sin. And when you follow the logic here, it's first the priest, because he needs to deal with his own sin before he can deal with anybody else's sin. And then he deals with the whole congregation. And then he deals with the head of the tribe. And then he deals with the common people. But the first two, look at verse 13. The next slide should say, who's it for? The whole congregation. If the whole congregation of Israel sins, and then you get the list of instructions. So the flow of thought here is first the anointed priest, the whole congregation, and these two, if you noticed, was a bull was offered. A bull. That's, that's a, a boy cow. That's a big animal. That's really expensive. That means that's a big deal. And here's my point. The first two designations for the who point to a greater severity than the next two. Meaning when a priest sins, it should be taken very seriously and it's very costly. And in fact, you'll notice that he is not supposed to eat any of this bull. So imagine butchering an entire cow, and the priest can't eat any of it. Now, I think part of the reason for that might be, like, what if he's like, well, I sinned again because I'm feeling a little hungry, like I want some steak or something, and he's like, no, no, we're not going to let you kind of jerry-rig this whole thing and kind of like, well, whenever I want, well, I sinned unintentionally, so uh, let's offer up another sacrifice. So he can't, he can't benefit from this. This is a very expensive offering that, remember, the priest he doesn't own these things, so he's got to get this from the community, and the community has to donate these cows to the priest for his sin. Are you starting to see, like, that's, that, that kind of stinks? Not just the smell of the offering, but, like, that's a tough situation. We've got, we got to help contribute as a community for the sins of the priest, and we've got to offer a full bull I think the applications for us should be obvious, right? 
pastors, elders. There's four of us in the room at Embassy. For any of you who might be aspiring elders or pastors, or for any of you that are at a church, you should realize that the Bible holds a higher standard of moral, lifestyle, and ethics for their pastors and leaders. Because the sin of pastors and leaders is devastating. It hurts really bad when churches have their pastor commit adultery. It hurts really bad when they embezzle money. The church, all the people start to wonder, can I even trust God anymore? What about all the good things that that pastor taught me? Now I'm starting to second guess all of it. You realize there's so many times where pastors might be believing that little lie, well, this isn't hurting anybody. Oh, even all of your little unintentional sins, priest, they hurt the community. Do not think your sin is in isolation. You're a leader and a shepherd over these people. So this is why James 3 verse 1 says in the New Testament, not everyone should be pastors and teachers. Four pastors will be held to a stricter judgment. Do you get the principle, both Old and New Testament? Stricter judgment, heavier price paid for the priest or the pastor. So we see in the first two, the anointed priest and the whole congregation are going to offer bulls. I do think it's also interesting that both the idea of like, well, that's just your stuff and that doesn't deal with me. No, that, that's a corporate solidarity. We are all in this together. And so the priest's sins need paid for by the bull from the community. And then the whole congregation, when a whole congregation sins. Like, that's not even a concept that you and I are normally used to talking about, right? That sin would be like a corporate thing that we would do collectively. But when you think about it, aren't every groups of people, every little clique or culture or every little subgroup of people, they can have their own tendencies to certain sins. And that's the idea here. Think, think of gossip as a good corporate congregational sin. That's not just one person. When gossip spreads through a church or bitterness or resentment, that could be a congregational sin. And in this way, there is a price to be paid and a sacrifice to purify the entire congregation. This is one of the reasons why, as the service started, you noticed we had a scripture reading from Numbers chapter 15, and then we did a corporate prayer of confession. And Amanda did not get up here and say, Dear God, I want to confess my sins. Every time we pray that prayer, we pray our sins. We collectively come before you, God, and we want to confess that we're sinners. And so this is a regular rhythm of our worship service. If you come around regularly, you'll notice we corporately confess our sin because we are corporately all in this together. And it will help you immensely to embrace the corporate identity of the Bible. That you are not a little individual isolated from the rest of the world and just what you and Jesus do is all that matters. No, everything that we do has an impact on our community, our family, the people around us. And therefore, there are times where we need to confess corporately and see the ramifications and implications for our sins for the corporate group. The last two groups you see are in verse 22 and in verse 27. Who is this sacrifice for? 
You see, it's called a leader in verse 22, if a leader sins. And the leader there is most likely like the head of a tribe. And then in verse 27, then if a common person sins. Which brings us to the grand conclusion, who is the sin offering for? Answer, everyone. Everybody's included. In fact, in chapter 5, if you noticed, that when there was further descriptions for how people were to bring their offerings, did you notice the language, now if you can't afford this, then you can give this. And if you can't afford the two pigeons, well then you could give some grain. I mean, everybody's got to have some bread or some food to eat. So no matter who you are, no matter how high or low you are in the economic status of the community, this sin offering fits for you. And so that's our first question. Who is it for? Well, short answer, it's for everybody in the community. Second question, when should it be done? On what occasion does the sin offering need to be done? And if you go to verse 2, you're going to notice that it is for unintentional sins. Unintentional sins. What are those? They are different than intentional sins. But more than that, they are different than high-handed sins. This is why Amanda read for us Numbers chapter 15. The two main categories in the Old Testament really aren't intentional versus unintentional but really unintentional sins and then high-handed sins. The reason I say that is because I think for you and I, we need to realize that there are some times when you sin, and this is one of the reasons why this particular chapter and this category is helpful. It teaches us a little bit about sin. First, sin is objective. You could do something wrong and not realize that you did, that it was wrong. Like, how many times do you pull the police officer, the police officer pulls you over and you say, well, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to speed because I didn't know the speed limit. And they're like, doesn't matter. You're still getting the ticket. You get what I mean? Like, not knowing, be like, well, all that matters is what's in my heart. No, what matters is if you obeyed or disobeyed. That's what matters. And so many times people are like, well, we, God looks at my heart and he sees my heart was pure. Your heart might have been pure for the wrong reasons. You might have done something with good intentions but really hurt somebody. And the category of unintentional sins shows that at core, 1 John teaches that sin is law-breaking. It's breaking the law whether you meant to do it or didn't mean to do it. I told this story several years ago, but a good example that I had in my own personal life was when I almost got arrested for being Abraham Lincoln. You guys remember that story? So I was an intern in Washington, D.C., and I dressed up like Abraham Lincoln, and I went on the steps where there was the I Have a Dream speech. Martin Luther King Jr. was there, and he stood in front of all of Washington, D.C., and he gave his speech. Well, I stood right there, and I started giving the Gettysburg Address, and I was dressed up like Lincoln. Do you, do you notice the resemblance? And so I put on the top hat and a bow tie and a suit, and, uh, and I gave it, and the park police officer came in, and he said, you can't do that here. And I'm like, well, I didn't know. He says, well, you can go do that at the barriers at the bottom. You can't do that up here. This is like sacred space. This is like a monument. So go do that down there. So I, I went down there. And then my friend thought, you know, we could make a lot of money off of this. So he started collecting donations. And then that same park police officer came around and he said, 
What are you guys doing? We're doing exactly what you told us to. We're down here. And he says, no, 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 you're taking money now. I'm like, well, we didn't know. And then he fined me and my friend, and he threatened to throw us in jail because he said, I've seen you before. You've done this before. I'm like, I've not done this before. Maybe the guy looked like Lincoln. Maybe that's why you think I did this before. But apparently there's many impersonators that are going around dressing up like Lincoln, trying to get money. The point is, I still had to pay the fine. It was unintentional. I had a good heart, guys. I put smile on people's faces. There was a big group from England that came over, and they got pictures with Abraham Lincoln. I made their day. It was President's Day of all days. Do you get my point? My heart did not change the fact that I was a lawbreaker. I was soliciting money and making money on government, federal, government property without the proper permit. I was guilty. Unintentional sins show that sometimes you're guilty even though you didn't mean to. If you noticed when Amanda was reading Numbers 15, it said, if somebody sins unintentionally, and then it uses a helpful phrase, if they made a mistake, that's what unintentional sins are. It's like when you make a mistake, like, oh, no, I, I didn't know. And, and then there's intentional sins. You guys should know what those are. That's when you're like, yeah, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's not necessarily a sin with a high hand. A sin with a high hand is not just simply intentional sins. All of you and I should be well aware of knowing what it looks like to, all right, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's intentional. High-handed sin, I think the simplest category for us is there's those who are repentant, and they realize what happened, and they're repentant. Their, their hearts are broken. They're sad about their sin. And there's people who are unrepentant. And they sin, and they don't care. They sin, and they're not guilty. They don't feel sorry. It's been brought to their attention. They're like, yeah, I don't care. This is why the Bible has in both Old and New Testament that sins with a high hand, unrepentant sinners, are excommunicated. They're sent out of the camp. They're no longer a part of the people of Israel. Did you notice the story in Numbers 15? You got unintentional sins. Here's the sacrifices you do. High-handed sins, put them out. And then the next thing you find is a story about a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And apparently, he was very unrepentant about this because the Lord sees his heart, knows what the whole situation's going on, speaks to Moses and says, stone him to death. The equivalent of stoning to death. Hopefully, you all might appreciate that we're not under the old covenant, so we don't do any more stoning to death. But in the new covenant, the equivalent of the high-handed sand is church High-handed sin is church discipline. This is why in 1 Corinthians 5, where you have a guy that is having intimate relations with his stepmom repeatedly, and it's known amongst the congregation, says, this is proud. This is unrepentant. He is not doing this to be like, oh, I made a mistake. Like, who commits adultery or sins in that sort of way? Like, oh, it's just a mistake. No, you did this on purpose, and you keep doing it, and you don't care. Send them out. They do not deserve to be a part of the people because they don't have a repentant heart. So if you were to think about it this way, there's two kinds of sinners in the world. Repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, you say, I follow Jesus, it is because you're the first kind. You are a repentant sinner. There's nobody in this room that hasn't sinned. All of us need an offering of blood to cleanse us and purify us. All of us need it. 
because all of us are unintentional and intentional sinners. The question isn't your intention. The question is, do you repent? Do you feel sorrow? Do you have a new relationship with your sin? And that change is what fundamentally the new birth of the Holy Spirit in one's heart changes a person. And why in the New Testament, the entrance into the church, or when we later take the Lord's Supper, this is what I say almost every week, if you're a Christian, you've been baptized, you believe in the gospel, your heart's been changed, you have a new relationship with God because you have a new relationship with your sin, then take the bread and the cup because you're a repentant sinner. The only time you should not take the bread, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, is when you're an unrepentant sinner, when you're not sorry for your sin. So many times people are like, well, I sinned last night, and so I'm feeling really guilty, so I'm not going to take the bread and the cup. That is like, no, no, you're missing it. Come to the table with repentance and take the blood of Jesus. Take his body and his blood and get cleansed. You don't come and get your life sorted out and figured out and then say, oh, now I'm going to come to Jesus. Not the first time and not the 50th time. So we need to know that when this was done was during unintentional sins or repentant sins. The second category we see in chapter 5, verse 1. If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. In other words, the category that's being talked about here is there's something you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be a witness, but you're not doing it. That's what we would call sins of omission. James says that if we know the good that we ought to do and we do not do it, this is sin. This is one of those very convicting points, by the way. A lot of times you think, well, I need forgiveness because of all the bad things I've done. True. What about all the good things that you should have done and you've not done? You've neglected. And the list of all those things that you think about that are commanded to us, prayer, love, encouragement, fellowship within the church, commitment to one another, allegiance to God, spreading the gospel, sharing it to the nations, giving generously. How many good things could you have done over the course of your life that you were like, no, nah, I just kind of did something else instead? Something else could have been maybe morally neutral. Like, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't the best, and it wasn't what God commanded. So there's a category of bringing this purification offering and being cleansed for sins of omission. And the last category is in verse 2 of chapter 5. If anyone touches the unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of an unclean livestock or a carcass of an unclean swarming things, and it's hidden from them, they didn't realize it, but then they do realize it, then they should be purified. If you keep reading Leviticus, one of the reasons why it's one of the least favorite books for many people is there's things like if you're on your menstrual cycle, you are now unclean. Whoa, what? You need a sin offering because you're on your menstrual cycle? That's one of those moments where you're like, this is weird. That's why the word sin offering can sometimes be unhelpful. Because it's not talking about sin, it's talking about needing cleansed, decontaminated. And it doesn't mean that women are somehow, you know, unholy or ungodly or less. It's just a rule, it's a principle. Some of these rules, when you read them, you're like, this just doesn't make sense to me. 
And then there's times when you look at your rules of contamination, it's like, this doesn't make sense to me either. It's just life. Rituals sometimes make sense and sometimes they don't. Don't look down on them and think, well, this is stupid. Like, why do you brush your teeth in the bathroom? That's weird. You put something in your mouth in the spot where all that stuff goes on? Like, why do we do that? I don't know. That's what we do. There's a lot of weird rituals that we have that are about cleanliness and uncleanliness. And the more you get into everybody's idiosyncrasies and cultural particularities, you realize, like, that's weird. Such is life. Such is the book of Leviticus. Don't miss the point. When you touch a dead thing, it's now that that dead thing has now been like contagious. You can't just waltz into God's presence with all of that death on you. If there's blood in any way, any bodily fluids or any, all these strange things, there's clean and unclean animals, there's not real clarity as to why these are clean and these are unclean. But there is. He's teaching through these rituals. There's a difference between being pure and clean and sanctified and being impure and unholy. And you come and bring the purification offering when you find yourself in any of these three categories. Unintentional sin, sins of omission, or when you are unclean. Let's move to our third and final question. What's the purpose? What does this do? It purifies. It cleanses. The reason for these sin offerings, you'll notice, is forgiveness. Look at that down in verse 20 of chapter 4. Thus he shall do with the bull, as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so he shall do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. So there's forgiveness for sins, and there's cleansing from uncleanly state, and therefore it allows for more sacrifices and more time into the presence of God. Because remember, our big idea is that in order to be with God, you must be cleansed, purified by the blood of another. Not your own blood. We don't offer our blood. We offer the blood of a bull or a goat or a cow or a pigeon. And so that's how cleansing happens. To illustrate this point, I want you to think about Shakespeare. And I want you to think about the idea in the story Macbeth. A couple years ago, I was doing a Bi- uh, not Bible reading, but a, a reading challenge. And uh, each week there was a different challenge for like reading different genres. And one of the challenges was during the course of that year, read something from Shakespeare. And I don't ever read things from Shakespeare, but I did. And I chose Macbeth. Anybody ever heard of the story Macbeth? So most of you know? No? Okay. All right, so here's the story. It's a play. A woman and I think her husband, if I remember it correctly, they murder somebody. And because of the guilt, the whole, the whole play is about the guilt of dealing with murdering someone. This woman has these nightmares. And so Lady Macbeth keeps waking up and she keeps going over to the sink and she keeps washing her hands. Not because there's anything on her hands, but because of the guilt, the stain. The conscience is not purified. She cannot sleep. She can't live with herself because of this filth on her. It's a beautiful, poetic picture of the stain of sin. And so she's got all of these different great lines of like how she can't 
cleanse her hands enough, and she's waking and muttering in the night, and she's like, oh, the spot, and it's, it's well done. It's, it's, it's why Shakespeare's well-known and famous, but I want you to get that picture in your mind. I want you to think about your conscience and the, the stain of sin, and I want you to think about in your own life the way that we're trying to wash our hands, but it's not doing anything how we're trying to cleanse ourselves of all the guilt and stain of all the sins that we've done, intentional sins, unintentional sins. There's an impure state that we live in, and we need cleansing. So what's going to purify and cleanse all of this? And we know that every year this would happen repeatedly, not just on the Day of Atonement, but on a regular basis, that the blood and the, of bulls and goats could not purify and cleanse the worshiper of their conscience. Turn with me to Hebrews, if you would. In the book of Hebrews, we had earlier the scripture reading from chapter 9. And it's not that the blood and the bulls of bulls and goats was ineffective to purify the worshiper in some sense. It did. It made them ritually pure but it did not have the power to purify the conscience of the worshiper. So I want you to follow along starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls, of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The reason we had that read earlier in the service, and I'm bringing it up again, is to show the contrast. It could purify from unclean to clean state. It could. But how much better is the blood of Jesus? How much better is it when a priest goes in on your behalf and he doesn't have to make an offering for his own sin first and then the sins of the people? There is only one priest who goes into the tent or the tabernacle, and it's not just an earthly tent. It is the heavenly tent. It is Jesus. And he goes into the heavenly tabernacle not for the purification of his own sin, but for our sins. And he does that with an effectual blood sacrifice. Effectual not just to make you in a ritually pure state, but to purify your conscience so that unlike Lady Macbeth, you can wake up and have good night's sleep and have day in and day out nightly rituals where God grants you rest and a freedom and a spirit in your heart where like, I'm cleansed. I'm free. I did a lot of bad stuff, and there's a lot of me that wants to just wash my hands and say, oh, if I could just get rid of the filth and the stain of the sin that I've done. And he does. It washes. It does. It's cleansing. It's purifying. How much better then, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve 
the living God. So what I want to make sure you realize is that Jesus becomes the purification or what we would call the sin offering. And we see this in two texts in the New Testament. I have them behind me on the screen. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For any of you that didn't make it downstairs for breakfast, sorry, you missed out. We heard a great testimony this morning from Corey. And he quoted this verse. And I was like, oh, that was convenient, you know. He read in his testimony that Romans 7 and 8 was a really important passage for his own kind of life of struggling with the flesh and the sin. And then finally, Romans 8 comes. And in Romans 8, 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, because of Christ, there is now no longer the guilt or the stain of sin. Why? Why is there there now no more guilt, no more conscience that's just wrecked by my sin because of this? God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. I have italicized and underlined that phrase, for sin, because many people have argued the language seems to be an allusion back to the sin offering. Some people have even translated. I think the New American Standard translates it this way, for the likeness of sinful flesh and for the sin offering. Jesus becomes the sin offering who dies as our substitute. His blood is effectual. It cleanses and it purifies. Or another verse that makes the same point, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be our sin offering. That's that same phrase that's used in Romans chapter 8. And the argument there could also be that Paul is referring to the sin offering. For our sake, he was made what? He was made our sin offering. And he who knew no sin, the only blameless priest that came into the holy place and the holy of holies, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm your pastor. I'm not perfect. We learned that today. I sin too. I need the blood of Jesus. You need the blood of Jesus. But Here's the thing I know we all need reminding every day. The blood of Jesus cleanses all your guilt, all the stains, all the uncleanliness. Like it, it works. It really has been done. It is finished on the cross. Why do I say that as your pastor? Because I meet with you all and I know that you are wrecked by your sin. You're beating yourself up right now because you have sinned. Jesus was already beat. Do not beat yourself up anymore. Look down at your hands and know that they're cleansed. Cleansed by Jesus yeah, you're a sinner. We're going to acknowledge that. But we have a greater Savior. His mercy is more. This is why we sang that song earlier, right? Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. My sin, it's so great, but His mercy is more. So we need to take the bread and the cup now, and we need to be reminded that even if you sinned this morning, unintentionally, intentionally, last night, if you come to the table with a repentant heart, 
a new relationship with your sin. You're a believer in Christ. You believe that the blood of Jesus is effectual. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sin. Then come to the table now. Receive the bread and the cup. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your blood. We thank you that it does not cry out for vengeance because you came to us and we rejected you and we killed you and we do not see the blood dripping from the cross, pleading for vengeance to be given to all of us deserving sinners, but instead your blood cries out mercy. We thank you for the cross, for the blood of Jesus. And we thank you that it is effectual, that it does cleanse, it has the power to sanctify and make new a people. Or as Hebrews says, to sanctify for worship or service to the living God. I pray, God, that the reminder of your forgiveness and the reminder of your cleansing power will lead us to greater service and greater fruitfulness as we get rid of our guilt and our stains. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.